You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. My intention is to share with you simple tips and tricks that will make a huge difference in your life, as well as giving you all the support and encouragement you deserve to enhance your parenting experience. I've created this safe place for us to explore the issues and concerns that matter to you bringing you clarity and solutions with Q&A sessions and inspirational conversations with world-renowned experts in a variety of fields. I've recently created a private community for us to continue these supportive and uplifting conversations. Click the Join the Art of Parenting Community Here button on this page and I will see you there. I'm a firm believer that parenting was never meant to be done alone, and I'm here to debunk the general consensus that it has to be hard. A warm welcome to you, and thanks for tuning in. Hello, and welcome back. This is Jeanne-Marie Penel with The Art of Parenting. And today, I have Leah Plunkett here with us to talk about a topic that I'm fascinated by that I didn't know was actually a thing. So it's, it's, (laughs) you know, it's, it's for me, this podcast is about learning with you uh, some of the, the art of parenting, really. So I'm really excited to have Leah here, who is an author and a law professor and author of Sharenthood, Why We Should Think Before We Talk About Our Kids Online. So Leah, thank you so much for making the time to be with us today and to share on this, um, I think, very important topic. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Alrighty, so I always like to start with my guests defining uh, for themselves the art of parenting. What would your definition be? The art of parenting combines the need to be present, fully and deeply present, even when it's hard in the moment, even when it's the middle of the night or your child's having a tantrum or your child is defying you, being fully present while also maintaining a sense of how to nurture your child's developing authentic self, not just now in the present moment, but into the future. Wow, that's a that's a lot, but it is it it's true. That's what it it is, the art of parenting. Beautiful. Thank you. So, before we get a little bit too involved in the specific of this conversation, I would love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to do the work that you are doing today. My work grew out of a combination of professional and personal interests, as I think work does for so many of us. I'm a mom, I live with my husband in Concord, New Hampshire, and we have two young kids, a boy and a girl, and a dog who is our first furry child. He's actually the oldest of the children. And right about the time I was becoming a parent, I also became a law professor. And I had the good fortune as part of my academic work to join the youth and media team at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society down at Harvard. And through my work with Berkman Klein, which was initially focused on student data privacy, I started to think a lot more critically and a lot more with a lot more curiosity about child and adolescent privacy. And at the same time that I was thinking about those questions as a researcher and scholar, 
I was posting things online about my own children. I was really enjoying friends' Facebook posts about we're expecting or the baby finally slept through the night. And of course, like all of us, I was trying to figure out, gosh, there's so many new digital tech services and products and they seem like so much fun. And the busier I got, went from one kid to two and got busier at work, the more tempting it felt to do more things digitally. So Sharenthood is a conversation that I started having with my husband, really internally with myself, with my colleagues, with my friends. And I thought, gosh, I'd love to try to write it down and grow the conversation still further. Beautiful, beautiful. And so how how do you define Sharenting? And, and how might that be different from maybe the definitions that uh, people have heard in the past? We law professors love definitions, so I'm so <laughs> glad you Much to our students' dismay. They're, they're like, you're splitting hairs. I was like, I know. That's why you're paying me. So sharenting is a term that is getting increasing use in the media and in our shared conversations. And I think that's wonderful. The typical definition that is used is what parents do on social media with information about or images of their children. And that is a big part of sharenting. But the way I define it, it's not the only part. I argue that properly understood, sharenting encompasses all the ways that parents, teachers, grandparents, coaches, and other trusted adults engage with their children's private information using a digital technology service or product. So under my definition, yes, the cute baby pic on social media is sharenting, but so is having an Alexa in your house that is picking up information about your child. So is the report just out from the New York Times, it was either yesterday or this morning, about a school district in New York that is going to start using facial recognition surveillance technology in a school district. That is sharenting. Yeah. it Sharenting includes everything that we do digitally with our children's private information, we being trusted adults in children's lives. Yet, I mean, it, it's it's fascinating. And at the same time, when you describe it, I get a little anxious and it's a little scary. And how do we navigate this in today's world where I think it just is increasing daily? I mean, you, you mentioned Alexa. I, you know, I personally do not want one in my house because I just feel like it's <laughs> big brother listening to me or whatever. So, and I know that, you know, a lot of people use them and it's, 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 you know, very convenient and all of this. So how do we navigate all of this as parents about um, the information that is being picked up? I think there are a couple of levels. The first level is I do think there are some pretty straightforward, pretty accessible rules of thumb that I would encourage parents to have. The first would be not to post any information about your child that could reveal their exact location, time, date, of birth, as well as your child's full name. I think that 
doing that kind of full information disclosure about identity, unfortunately, can be an appealing target for identity thieves intent on obtaining fraudulent credit in a child's name. So I would encourage parents, if they do want to post pictures on social media, think about using a first name or an initial. The next thing I would say is please don't post any pictures of your kids in any stage of undress. Even if it's very innocent, you know, the family at the beach, those images unfortunately can wind up with unwanted gazes on them and can be repurposed and used for ends that we would find shocking and despicable as parents. So better not to invite that gaze. Third, I encourage parents not to use surveillance or tracking technologies on their kids. And it's appealing. It's appealing to have the sense of, gosh, I'll always know where my child is if there's an app on their phone. Let's say they're a teenager and they have their own phone. Or if they're a little younger and you actually don't trust them with a phone yet, let's say you get them one of those watches that can tell you, the parent, their location, as well as allow them to text or call a certain amount of numbers. I feel very strongly that giving our kids surveillance and tracking technologies winds up exposing their movements to potential data security breaches to hackers, also to big tech companies whose ends we can't always know and certainly can't control. And it also removes the potential for our kids to grow their sense of self-efficacy. Well, let's say I'm nine years old and I've just started walking to school. What would I do? if I got hurt? What would I do if I saw a stranger? I want kids to know you find a police officer or a teacher or a trusted parent and ask for help. And I want kids to know in that second scenario, you scream fire and run and never get in the car. I don't want kids thinking, I'm going to be able to text my mom and she'll tell me. You may not have time in a true emergency to test your to text your mom. So I think it's better to resist the impulse to really spy on our kids' movements. Last but certainly not least, I think that parents should look for low-tech or no-tech ways to do the most intimate things. One example, there's now a smart diaper on the market that can let you as the parent. Yes. What is a smart diaper? A smart diaper lets you know when it needs to be changed. Gives you a little notification. (laughs) And I just think, you know, I I said this once at a – at a book event in Ann Arbor, Michigan, actually my hometown, I, I hauled out the smart diaper and a pediatric urologist who was in the audience came up to me afterwards and said, you know, there are occasionally reasons why we as medical professionals might actually want parents to track urine output that closely. I said, fine. So I've now amended my advice. It was a good point to say low tech or no tech whenever possible, because we really don't know from the terms and conditions of use and privacy policies that are hard to find, especially on smart devices. They are difficult to read, and they inevitably have language in them that gives the tech company a sort of of get-out-of-jail-free card. So we won't Mm -hmm. share the data unless it's to improve your experience or with our third parties. Well, what the heck does that mean? I'm a law nerd, and I don't even know. And then the last thing I would say to kind of broaden this out one level to go from my kind of rules of thumb I encourage all of us adults with kids in our lives, whether they're in our homes or our schools or our sports programs, let's take a step back and think about the values that we want 
in our homes and in our schools. And starting with that identification of values, let's try to make tech choices to the best of our ability that enhance or at least don't disrespect those values. Very, very good points. And, and it's, it's amazing because as you were talking, it was for me this sense of really letting go of kind of our, our, our intuition or our, you know, like you say, the child who is in trouble, they need to learn how to, you know, to, to get out of harm's way. And, and, and it's hard because when you were talking, I can, I can hear my listeners going, but, but, you know, this doesn't make sense. Here we are developing all these technologies to quote unquote, keep our children safe Yet you're saying, you know, be be wary of using them. Exactly. And I recognize the tension there. And look, you know, like, like all parents, like your listeners, I would jump in front of a truck for my children. And I know they would too. But I think that technology, when it comes to things like surveillance and tracking, holds out a bit of a false promise. And that false promise is the idea that more information, more data is always better or is always safer. And unless there is a surveillance product out there, if there is one, I'd love to hear about it. I'm unaware of it. um, That has an ironclad, easy to read privacy promise that says we are deleting this data after a month. We are not sharing it with any third parties outside of this company. And this company promises you we will treat it like a vault. It will be like a safety deposit box. No one else can see it. Then I might feel a little bit better, but I really worry that the more intimate information. And location data can be very intimate. Where, What are your child's movements? Is your child straying out of the boundaries that you've set? Well, do you want a tech company that you don't really know and can't really trust to know what your child does and when they're going somewhere that you think they shouldn't? I don't think we do. And can I guarantee that this information, you know, would be used against our children later? Absolutely not. But do I think that there are other ways of teaching our children safety that don't compromise their privacy and are fundamentally better skills for them to have? I really do. There was a great op-ed in the New York Times within the last week or so. To paraphrase the title, it was by a writer who was talking about her 11-year-old being lost in New York City without a cell phone and how it all turned out fine. And it's an intriguing title because, you know, even as a privacy-protecting, don't-spy-on-your-kids advocate, I saw the title and was like, oh my gosh, I wish that poor child had had a cell phone. And then actually the, the woman goes through how it happened that her child had gotten slightly lost. And it was one of those inevitable in a busy household mix-up of a babysitter not being you know, in the right place or something like that. And then that her child stayed calm and found a phone and called for help and was fine. And I think that that kind of let's take a deep breath, let me orient myself, we want our kids to be able to do that now and in the future. 
Yes, definitely. And and to me, it also brings up that whole notion of trusting our children, like our children are capable and trusting that they will know what to do and to have those conversations of, you know, what, what, what if kind of the what if right. conversation, because it's true that if we just depend on, you know, like you say, these tracking devices, then we're kind of, you know, off the hook. And, and I don't think that that's, doing that's doing a disservice to our children so very very interesting yeah yeah and so when you say though you know um you've been talking about sharing kind of more on a uh kind of negative way but what would be some benefits and then and then you know again if you could elaborate on what those potential risks could be Sure. So I think there are a lot of benefits of sharenting. I'm a sharent. Sharenting, remember, includes any digital transmission or other activity of children's private information. I text pictures to my parents of their grandkids all the time. You know, that's just one example. That is sharenting. Is you're it just you're just not posting it on a bigger platform where strangers can see it, basically. That's right. That's okay. right. Right. And okay. so you know, and I, of course, could trust my parents completely, but is there always a attenuated risk that somehow their phone gets lost or their phone gets hacked? Or sure, I, I feel comfortable with that level of risk because sharenting allows us to connect. It allows us to connect with people we already know and love who may not live near us. It allows us to connect with people we haven't met yet, but with whom we share important interests and affinities. I think sharenting can be particularly important for families where there is a child with a disability or chronic illness or other ongoing challenge because families really need the resources and the empowerment of connecting with other folks in a similar situation and pooling their wisdom and commiserating and also in certain instances to band together to try to make changes. I think, for instance, when we talk about making sure that we're standing up for laws in this country that protect people with pre-existing health conditions, it's really important for families with a child who was born with a serious or life-threatening illness to be able to speak about that. And yes, that is sharenting if you're saying my child has this condition that's private information that you might be posting on a blog or putting in an op-ed that goes on a website. But that is one of the other benefits of sharenting is that you can make the personal political, and I don't mean partisan, I mean political in terms of being something that's used to galvanize or motivate change. And there are times when it's really important to be able to do that. So there are ways that sharenting can be very positive. And and, and even there, you're talking about sharing something that is personal, but maybe without, you know, without details as to, like you said, the name and the location and, and the exact birth date and all of that. Exactly. And I am also talking about going back to this idea of values-based sharenting. I certainly would always proceed from a sort of default position of less is better when it comes to what you say about your children digitally. But if one of the values in your home, let's say, is 
protection or respecting your child's health and life, you may well say that those values outweigh your value-based commitment to privacy. Maybe the Mm -hmm. stakes are so high. You know, maybe it's a clinical research trial that's about to get shut down and it's the one thing that you've been holding on hope for, for your child. It might actually be a values-based choice to say, I am going to put a premium on doing everything I can to try to change this situation, even if it includes getting very detailed and very specific. Because of course, as we know, stories are often more powerful when they're more intimate. Right, right. Right. No, so it's it's fascinating. It's really you, you know, like you say, your values help you prioritize what what is important to share, basically. Exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then and then what um, you know, you, you shared a little bit about what the risks are, but could you go a little bit into detail so that our listeners really understand what what, you know, maybe media companies or or just the, the tech companies might be doing with our information? Absolutely. I think about the risks in three big buckets. The first bucket contains those risks that are criminal, illegal, or dangerous. And the scary stuff that goes in there would be things like a picture of your child being retooled and made into an image that is pornographic or abusive. It would include your child's location data being used by a potential abuser or criminal perpetrator to find your child. And I'm not trying to be fear-mongering. Unfortunately, many children who are survivors of abuse know their abuser. It's someone in their broader network. And so to serve up, even if it's not location information, even if it's things about your child's fears or hopes or treats, those can be things that can be used to groom or manipulate a child. So that stuff is a, is a very real concern. Second bucket includes those risks that are not illegal. So they're legal, but they're kind of invasive or opaque or suspect. And in that bucket, I would put the things that tech companies or the third-party companies affiliated with them are doing with our children's data that we don't have meaningful advanced knowledge of, we don't really give meaningful consent, and we don't really have a way to stop it. I'm talking about the federal in terms of federal law here. There are some states like the California Consumer Privacy Act that just went into effect last month that are providing some greater protections. But this category would include things like data brokers who function like a shadowy version of credit reporting agencies and aggregate vast amounts of intimate information about all of us, but including our kids. A recent study, maybe two years ago or so now actually, by CLIP, the Center on Law and Information Policy at Fordham Law School, surveyed a sample of data brokers and found that some of those brokers had information about children as young as two years old. And they had, yes, and they had marketing lists available that were categorized for things as intimate as 14 or 15-year-old girls who might need family planning services. 
And the research team could not determine definitively and comprehensively where all the data had come from. It did manage to ascertain that at least some of it had come from schools and not from any sort of massive data breach or massive records release, but in other ways it seemed like, like teachers or students taking surveys online and the information was passed along. And I think, unfortunately, we're all getting more accustomed to seeing headlines like the one in the New York Times from this fall about how it turned out that pictures from social media accounts going back to 2004, 2005 were being used to train what the New York Times called bleeding edge surveillance technology, facial recognition technology. And those pictures included pictures of kids that their parents had posted. And parents were interviewed not every single parent, but some parents, and said, we had no idea this was happening. And of course, there's really no way they could have known. And so unfortunately, we do have to accept uh, as a general rule in this country right now that if we are digitally sharing information about our kids through a digital product or service, unless it falls into one of those rare exceptions where there are very clear, almost kind of nutrition style privacy policies laid out for the consumer that you can understand and that are followed, you really do want to assume that there may well be things happening, not just now, but in the future with that data you're sharing. And that third bucket of risk is actually the one in some ways nearest and dearest to my heart, even though in some ways it's the it's the most intangible. And this category of risk is about children's sense of self and children's relationships. We touched on a little bit of little bit of this earlier when I was saying that if we use spyware on our kids, we risk depriving them of the space to develop more of a sense of self-efficacy. This category refers to all the ways that sharenting can mediate our children's reputations and relationships by painting a picture of them that's out in the world, that's seen by other people now or in the future. So now I'm talking about people, not tech companies and can shape those folks' idea about them. And in turn, it may wind up shaping our kids' ideas about themselves. Because if they get the sense from a young age, and our kids increasingly have this sense, that everything they're doing can be shared and stored and perhaps seen, then that can really limit the freedom they feel as kids and teenagers to play. And I don't just mean play dolls. I mean make mischief, make mistakes, and grow up better for having made them. And if they don't have that space as kids, then we really are depriving them of the ability to grow up into the people that they're meant to be. Hmm. And and that's, that is you know, a very important point that that third bucket that you say that sense of self, um, because, you know, it, it's like, we're, we're labeling them or, or, or such, and that would be doing them a disservice. Uh, and it's interesting, because I know with my, uh, so I have my children are both in university. And uh, when my first one was getting ready to apply, she, um, I, I signed her up for a kind of a workshop to help them, you know, start the application process and everything. And one of the first things that they had them do 
was clean up their social media accounts. And exactly. To, to get uh, proper, you know, email names and, and, and all of this, none of these, you know, funny little goofy names that they <laughs> had before and all of that. And so it's fascinating. And, and I see with my older daughter, she's, you know, she's actually off of social media because, um, you know, more for other reasons, I think the social media affects our uh our well-being and our self-esteem in a way um so that's fascinating i'm just i'm just fascinated like how this is going to evolve because i mean it is all new you know it's it's i mean i'm dating myself because it wasn't it wasn't part of my uh you know teenage years and now i see these new generations that how is that going to to evolve and just if uh, affect our our personality development. It's fascinating. It is, and I'll date myself as well. I didn't have email till I went to college. I did not have a cell phone until after college. When I was trying to find someone when I was in college, if they were on the same campus as as I was, I was calling their landline or leaving a note on the whiteboard on their door, or maybe just walking over to their dorm room. Or, or or saying, I will meet you at such a exactly. place at such a time. And you were actually there. You didn't say, oh. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That, yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Fascinating. And and I would love if you could just a little bit, you know, your book, Sharon Hood, um, does definitely take a very, you know, non-judgmental and, and, and value-based approach. And if we could just kind of finish on this point of just reiterating the importance of really basing your your decisions about technology use and about what you share on those values that you have created in your home for your family. Exactly. I think that we are all in this together. There is no right way and no wrong way to do this. And it's so important for us to have conversations to have conversations with one another, within ourselves, and with our kids. Because I loved your example of your daughter being guided in how to kind of clean up her act, right? Her social media <laughs> act, right? Um, it is interesting. We're at a point where sometimes even our very young kids are getting digital citizenship or digital etiquette or sometimes called netiquette instruction in their schools. In fact, in I think it was 2016, Washington State passed a law saying that all K through 12 schools had to teach digital citizenship to their students. Wow. And exactly, which I think is a wonderful curricular addition. And it struck me when that law was passed that there are going to be a lot of places where our kids are being taught about and talking about things like digital privacy. Can you take a picture of someone if they don't want a picture taken of you? Can they post something about someone who doesn't want to have the picture posted? And so on. And I think that we, one of the things we might do as parents as a starting point is ask our kids or our kids' teachers, are they having these kinds of conversations? Sometimes it's in a STEM class or a computer lab. If they are, let's try to follow along 
And if they're not, let's go online and look up curricula from places like Common Sense Media or the Berkman Klein Center's Youth and Media Team, which I'm a part of. We've developed some curricula for use in schools, but they can be repurposed for the home. And really use this all as a series of teachable moments for our kids as well as for us. And I think what's tricky about this and anxiety provoking for us, and I include myself in this as a parent, is that most things our kids come across, we have some sort of experience with. So maybe I didn't get cut from the basketball team in eighth grade, but I got cut from the drama department, right? So we're used to the idea of disappointment or your first crush or your first love. Those of us who didn't grow up digital, and I'm the tail end of Gen X, and even folks younger than I am didn't grow up digital the same way our kids are. We are, we feel sometimes a little bit out of our depth. And the truth is, we're not. Because if we take a deep breath and come back to this idea of what are our values, what's the common sense we bring to the art of parenting, whatever that means for us, that can guide us in technology as well. Beautiful. Yes. Just going back to, like you say, the values, like really you know, asking ourselves those questions are so important. Thank you for this. This conversation is just very valuable. And, and I've learned a lot because as, as I said at the, in my introduction, it was, you know, when you contacted me, I'm just fascinated, like what's, what's going on, you know, why? <laughs> and, and so thank you for, for writing this book and, and letting us know what, um, what our options are. So wonderful. And and as I, as we wrap up, I always like to ask a more personal question, if I may. Sure. And so you did say you'd have two children. Uh, and what is the the age of the oldest? If you if you want to share, I'm happy to share. He is nine. Nine. Okay. So if we were to go back ten years ago, when you were expecting your first child. What wise words would you tell yourself today, knowing all that you know? I love that question. And I think the wise words would be ones that actually a colleague at the time, a woman slightly older than I was, said to me. And I heard her, but I didn't really hear her. She said, you can always clean your house later. And I sort of laughed when she said it. And, and sort of thinking, yeah, 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 you know, I'm actually, I'm not, I'm not super uptight about my house even now. It'll be fine. And I realize now that what she meant was all of those things that we're used to doing to keep our lives organized, to feel like we have a sense of order, to feel like we have a sense of calm, a lot of those we may need to ha- let go by the wayside a little bit, especially in those early months and early years. And I'm certainly not advocating to my past self or to other parents out there that you let go of the things that keep you feeling grounded, like, you know, washing your hair after the baby spit up on you. But I, <laughs> but I am saying you really can always clean your house later. It's still going to be there when you get to a point where your child's sleeping through the night or when they'd rather be at a sleepover than home with you anyway. And I, I wish I had really taken her words to heart. That I remember them shows that they broke through the chorus of the many things that were said to me as I was expecting, but I don't think I fully understood how important they were. 
Yes, that's beautiful. And and it and it's funny because it actually goes back to that whole notion of values too and prioritizing. Mm. So beautiful. Beautiful. Are there any closing remarks that you would like to leave our listeners with? I would just like to thank them for taking the time to listen and perhaps reading the book. I have been so fortunate to have conversations with folks as a result of this book from around the world, including one very recent one. I got a request through my author website, leahplunkett.com, from a high school student in the middle of the country and her speech coach. They were preparing for a speech competition, and the student was doing a speech about Sherrington. And I set up a video conference with them. And I loved the discussion because it was one of the first times a young person had reached out to me for a consult. I've had people come to book talks. I've presented at libraries. But it was the first more sort of professional request I'd had for my my expertise from a high school student. And of course, as is always the case when you really talk to a young person, the questions were tough. Mm-hmm. And that was awesome. So I would I would like to thank everyone for being willing to have this conversation with me and with each other and also particularly encourage any young people who might be listening or parents and grandparents as you talk to the young people in your lives, how can we bring them into this conversation? Beautiful, beautiful. Well, thank you for starting this conversation uh, because it is a very important one. So thank you for your time today. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Art of Parenting. And if you did, please make sure to share it with your loved ones. And do come share your takeaways in our private Facebook community. I'd also be grateful for a review on iTunes so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time.